0: So we exist as human beings in relation to other people. We are pack animals. Uh, we don't run, climb trees, dig holes, or fight particularly well. We don't have massive teeth, at least none that I know of. Um, so the way we survive is by connecting into affiliate relationships that are based on trust. and. Uh, it's a very complicated process in fact so human beings are uh, the most uh, require the longest period of time of um, postnatal caretaking before we can go out into the, you know into the world on our own and take care of ourselves and the human brain uh, requires about 26 years to fully wire. Uh, The first three years we're just wiring up the various sections, um, which is why we don't really have very long-lasting memories from our first three years. In fact, the hippocampus, which creates lasting memories, isn't even wired up until about three. But the amygdala, the fear, memory sections of the brain, is working from the very moment we're born. So that's the one thing you've always got wired up. Um, So it takes um, a lot of uh, priming and preparation to get a human being to uh, get to a place where they can interact with other people in a useful way. And we need to do that because um, that's how we process our emotions. Uh, Human beings... We regulate our emotions, which means we um, diffuse them largely through interacting with each other. Not just through language, talking about it, but when we're in proximity with each other and we can report our emotional states, somebody else can see our body language, our tone of voice, facial expressions, our gestures, and they can create what's called a safe container where we can voice emotions and then be heard and in that uh, being heard, being seen, uh, our emotions are normalized and uh, we are given a safe place where we can allow them to arise without feeling like we're going to basically come apart. So we need people desperately. We, uh, if you want to drive somebody mad, put them in solitary confinement for an extended period of time. Uh, without other people, generally what happens is eventually, even if you've got an amazing meditation practice, uh, after long periods of isolation, you'll find that your ability to regulate your emotional responses to thoughts, perceptions, memories, uh, experience, will begin to become unchecked, unmoderated, and they'll become more and more extreme. So uh, while meditation and spiritual practice gives us a wonderful inner container that can help us diffuse uh, on a daily basis difficult experience, over time we always need other people. Uh, yet the, given how much we need other people we still cause so much harm and experience so much wounding and so much disappointing experience and we uh, can have with people we love or we want to have secure attachment we can wind up with long lasting years of Conflict that we don't work through. So, why is it? Why is it that we need people so much and yet we can fall into these guarded, distant, ongoing feuds, uh, resentments that uh, we don't want to work through? So the Buddha, when he was asked in Saka's question, to wonderful Sutta, what is the origin of conflict? He worked his way back giving us a series of stages and he works it back to what's called Papancha. Papancha, like all Buddhist terms, they all have multiple meanings. Dharma, Sangha, sati—all the key Buddhist terms—they really can't be translated in a one-to-one uh, English word. Uh, there was far few less. There were far fewer words in Pali, the Buddha's uh, recorded language, so um, each word had many, many meanings. Like the word "love." It can mean care, it can mean affection, it can mean attraction, it can mean a lot of different things. You can't really define love by just giving one other word. So, um, Papancha is that tendency of the mind to take some things personally and other things as not personal. We divide every experience very, very quickly into a dual set of categories. This is about me and this is not about me. So, for instance, suppose you're at a, at a job site and you hear your boss uh, shouting. And uh, you can tell that she he is angry. One of the first thoughts that might arise in the mind, even before wondering what they're angry about, might be, geez, if you use the word geez in your mind, (laughs) which would (coughs) date you, uh, you might say, holy cow, I wonder if he's thinking about me, if he's angry at me. So we get caught up in, in basically determining whether external events are about us or not about us generally, in our direct perception, we tend to take things personally when they arise what feels like inside the body. So we consider the thoughts ours, but if somebody says something to us, we don't consider it to be ours. We consider body sensations to be ours, but we don't consider the... the, if somebody comes up and taps us, that to be ours. So... We tend to break up things in our direct experience in terms of just what we experience as being inside. So inside we, you know, think is mine and outside is not mine. But then it gets more complex because we have reputations that we want to defend. So we don't like the idea of hearing, blah, 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 it's been talking shit about you. because we're not there, but still we feel there's somehow a representation of ourselves in the world, a reputation that we have to protect. And then we have our skills and our abilities and our views sometimes we have to protect. So we get very... We design or put our designs or uh, are... We basically claim things that are not even in... The body as ours, our family. Don't talk shit about my family. Don't you talk shit about my mother? Don't. What the fuck? No idea what I'm doing. Anyway, uh, so we're we have uh, we have things that we lay claim to as ours, even though they're not even a part of us physically. Some people get all wrapped up about their country. I get wrapped up maybe about Williamsburg, Brooklyn. <laughs> I spent most of my life there. And even I can, then I'll talk shit about that too. But, uh, you know, we can get very, very caught up in owning things. And that tendency to create this me, mine, this papancha, is the direct cause of conflict. The more. We walk around feeling a possession, feeling an ownership, taking something as personal, the more likely we are to wind up in conflict. According to uh, the Suda, I think it sounds pretty reasonable, the more stuff that you're going to get sensitive about or feel like you have a responsibility and obligation to protect, that certainly will expose you to feelings of uh, attack. So, part of the process that creates Papancha is what the Buddha called Sakaya Ditti, which is the stories we walk around with our autobiographies. In these autobiographies, we create all those things that we claim as ours. So, In those times that we spend thinking about our past, our future, our obligations, our goals, the the views and opinions that uh, we cling to, we're creating papancha, creating a whole host of uh, objects, behaviors, and thoughts that we feel then we have the obligation to monitor uh, and take care of and that lays us open for conflict. which is why uh, the Buddha says the end of conflict is the end of attaching to views of self views of the world easier said than done right but uh, this is not a, an either or proposition it's just meant to call attention to what we're doing every time we start to claim or develop strong opinions about something or to feel a sense of uh, pride or a sense of uh, 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 the unskillful kind of attachment. That we're laying ourselves open to events or to, uh, to experience that might very well backfire in the future. So we'll talk in a little while about ways to uh, undo that in our practice, but I'd like to uh, take a moment now to talk about the psychological perspective on uh, conflict, um, and I'm going to talk from perspective of uh, some of my favorites, like Masterson, Winnicott, Bowlby, uh, Mary Ainsworth, uh, some of the great 20th century psychologists, and essentially what happens uh, from that perspective is early in life, we're very vulnerable as infants. We need constant caretaking, and any disconnection from our caretakers, our parents, can feel like the end of the world, because we are completely dependent upon those uh, parental figures to stay alive, and we realize this. Uh, Any disconnection can feel like pretty much annihilation. And the feelings associated with blame, uh, anger, uh, rejection, abandonment, uh, disapproval from a caretaker can create feelings that to a child are overwhelming. The feeling of seeing a parent turning away, rejecting, becoming, disapproving, or withholding when we seek love and care and kindness, that alone is uh, fairly overwhelming. But the emotions then that it creates and arise, uh, we don't have as infants or children the capacity to hold those emotions. So what do we do? We will suppress them using the tools that we have available to us, which means pushing them out of awareness. We will suppress the uh, intolerable emotive arousal states that come about when we're rejected or disapproved of or feel abandoned. So um, how do we push them down? Well, we might uh, immediately seek a distraction, seek to run to. television, seek to run to comic books or games, or we might, if we feel confronted, we might lie to say or do anything to get out of a uh, conflictual situation. We'll do anything to get rid of the situation, to not feel the um, the abandonment experience because it's it feels like the end of the world. And throughout... Our teen life, when we are introduced to the playgrounds or to the interpersonal experiences of teenage life, when we uh, experience times of shame or uh, ridicule from other kids, those times when we feel left out, ostracized, uh, picked on, they create emotional states that we too can't hold at those early ages. because again, they feel like overwhelming, threatening situations that will never end. Uh, As teens, we still don't have the perspective that those periods of our life will pass and that we won't be stuck forever in rejecting uh, abusive situations. So the emotions that arise in a playground or in a classroom or in a summer camp where we feel Kicked out of the group, or uh, laughed at, or scorned, can um, be devastating. And once again, we'll choose defense mechanisms to get rid, to push them out of our awareness. Defense mechanisms are are strategies that are not skillful, that are meant not to feel emotions, but to get rid of them entirely. Drinking is a defense mechanism. Taking drugs, compulsive activities. Uh, from sex to uh, any other compulsive activity meant to switch our attention away from an emotion is not particularly skillful. But at those ages, we'll do just about anything not to feel what's arising uh, during these traumatic experiences. So by the time we uh, become adults, we've got generally, no matter how tolerant our childhood was, we've still got quite a few... Uh, suppressed and continually repressed energies of sadness and anger uh, and fear associated with these um, experiences of being shunned and rejected. So they're there, and they don't go away simply because we suppress them, simply because we don't pay attention to them. Uh, It would be lovely if we could, every time we felt sadness, just turn on, uh, you know, Louis C.K., and it would go away forever. Or if we felt angry, we could just, you know, watch. I don't know what people watch when they're angry. if they felt lonely, we could just turn on Facebook, and we'd never feel lonely again. The loneliness would just magically disappear. It doesn't work that way. That's why we feel empty when we use things like food, sex, drugs, uh, social media, internet shopping, uh, as a Tinder. <laughs> I <think> to <laughs> uh, as a strategy to get rid of emotions, we feel empty at the end because all we've done is we've suppress something and that emptiness is the feeling of the absence of the emotion but emotion is still there we just feel hollow and then something happens in life somebody says something that reminds us of an early experience of rejection or outrageous behavior that we experience from our parents or from other kids and then what happens is the emotions arise they are no longer Suppressed or repressed and they come flooding up and it's awful because when we experience these suppressed emotions, um, once again, we feel like they're going to kill us, just like a child, even though we're now an adult, but we're still living in that uh, because we haven't worked through enough uh, conflicts or perhaps we haven't allowed ourselves to feel... These feelings of sadness, rejection, anger, whatever is buried, we haven't allowed ourselves to feel it. So we, when they arise, they can feel like annihilation. We'll have no control. We'll be taken over. They'll swamp us. We'll lose our shit. And so what we do to, not fe- to keep the emotions suppressed is we get caught up in the story of the conflict. that asshole! I can't believe he said... She had the nerve to say, I never call her, I call her all the time, (laughs) etc. Really getting caught up in the stories of the present conflict is all about uh, defending ourselves from feeling the older feelings that are uh, seeking our attention and seeking our, uh, you know, want to be processed. They seek our awareness, but we don't want to give it to them because we, don't. we still feel that we have that memory that as children we couldn't hold these feelings and we needed to get rid of them. So as adults, we still feel we'll be killed by these emotional activations, these states of arousal. So we get caught up in the rejection story of how dare they. The, and generally what we can get spun out is between blame-shame. Have you ever noticed that? Fuck them, Fuck you! How could I have done that? Why did I do that? Fuck you. How could I have done that? I'm such an asshole. Fuck all of them. Why did I open myself up? Fuck. (laughs) So so, that's all the show so that we don't have to feel the somatic expression of emotional states. Um, So the more we get caught up in the story, the less... We really do the work that needs to be done. Uh, As we become, uh, these feelings arise, and the left hemisphere becomes activated with all the stories and the blame and shame and the 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 speech making and all the the times you ever stayed up at night reviewing all the things you should have said to somebody. (laughs) You know, after the carnival. (laughs) I should have been a circus clown, and then, you know, then there's a, that son of a bitch, if only I had said blah, 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 instead of shutting down and just listening, you know. (laughs) So, so the left hemisphere gets activated, we tell stories so we don't have to feel what's present, and then we become what's known as hypervigilant, which means we stay on alert because we're activated, and, uh even if we succeed in using a defense mechanism to, to pr- repress, suppress, I should say, push down these uh, arousal states that need our awareness, we'll still be physically activated. The, the cortisol that's released when somebody triggers us or triggers an old emotional experience or we feel activated... Um, It lasts for a significant period of the body. Cortisol doesn't secrete and go away. What generally happens in life is we uh, get pissed off or frightened, and then we will immediately pull our attention away to a distraction, a computer, a laptop, you know, something to make the, the feelings go away. And so the body is still tense. The muscles are still tense. The neurotransmitters are still released the shoulders are still tight the jaw is still locked the breath is still hyperventilating the stomach is still tight we're still sitting like this but the brain is like oh okay whatever that didn't matter I'm back on you know Amazon and it's all good again because I can shop for something I don't need and I don't have to think about the experience that just happened that was really unpleasant so we remain activated, and what can happen in, in life is we bounce from being you know, uh, activated to distraction, suppressing, and then the body stays tight, and then something else will happen, and so we can keep the body in a perennial state of stress, deeply unhealthy, even though we're not aware of it, because we're not living in an embodied awareness, we're up here, Live, living in the future or the past the things we have to get done the, and the conflicts. so we're hyper aroused, we're hyper vigilant we're looking for other possible woundings and we pick them up very quickly so on top of these uh, these activated states that we're unaware of we uh, We can keep conflicts going for many, many years without resolving them, even though the process of resolving a conflict is really, generally, always boils down to communication. I've been working with people for 10 years now, and virtually every conflict stays in place because one or both people get to a place where they decide that they, it's worthless to try to talk it through. And now, in situations where there's real physical or emotional abuse, I do recommend not trying to work things through. If you feel unsafe, it would be stupid to go back into that arena and subject oneself to abuse. But there's many, many conflicts, in my experience, that are not founded on abuse. They're founded on disappointment, feelings of one person putting in more work into a relationship than the other person, feelings of, you know, whatever that have not been met, feelings of uh, uh, slights, woundings, things that could actually be worked through. So why do we avoid the communication? In my experience, one of the prime movers in that is what's known as expectations. People, myself and uh, many times in my life included, can build up these long stories about exactly how we assume the other person will respond if we try to communicate about how we feel. I once was, uh, years ago, talking with a guy who uh, uh, was in a relationship uh, and uh, they had had a kid, and uh, for one reason or another, they had, had, they had stopped having sex uh, about three years earlier. They were still living together. And uh, so I asked him, uh, so when you talk about that, uh, what do you hear? He said, oh, we never talk about it. Oh, no, no. (laughs) Are you crazy? I was like, well, when you talked about it in the past, oh, no, are you sane? I've never talked about that. I was like, well, three years. Why? And he said, well, if I say, hey, you know, I'd like to have sex, but every time I try, it seems that you're uncomfortable with it, then she'll say she doesn't want to talk about it because it makes her uncomfortable because she's got issues around it. And then I'll say, I'll get angry, and then I'll say, well, you know, blah, 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 why don't you do this, why don't you do that? And then she'll say, and he had, before me, he had this long conversation (laughs) back and forth. I was like, Really? (laughs) You know exactly, to a word, how that would play out. Now, this is interesting and important to understand because let's put that aside for just a second and remember that the human brain is what's known as negativity bias. We build our memories out of the most generally disappointing experiences in life. That is how we build our memories about other people. We are five times more likely in relationships. There's a wonderful study I read that for a relationship to be healthy, there has to be five times more positive uh, interactions than negative, because if there's any less than that ratio, people will only remember the negatives. <laughs> we are not set up to remember positive attachment times when people went out of their way. or were gener- We are set up to remember the uh, snipes, the wounds, the rejections, the disappointments. So our, our expectations are not based on realistic representations of other people. They are based on negativity bias. We are five times more likely to build our expectations on negative experiences with other people. Do you see why believing and expectations and anticipations and the stories about how we believe other people will respond might not always be the best plan of action? In my experience in life, I very often have seen that the expectations I've built up have not in any way it turned out to be true or real when I actually investigate them. Part of the reasons our expectations come true is because we listen to them so much that when we go into art and conversations we're like fuck you! <laughs> I, I want to talk to you about something that happened together. <laughs> you are a son of a bitch! <laughs> and they're like well yeah fuck you! <laughs> and they're like and then they come up it went exactly like I said. Exactly. They got defensive. I don't know why. <laughs> they got defensive. I was just foaming at the mouth, and my teeth were showing, and I had a gun, but they got defensive. I was armored to the teeth emotionally, but they were defensive. So the strategies of working through are always about first putting aside these stories putting aside these resentments. Staying present is the first rule of working through conflicts. Right now, in this moment, what is happening? When we are talking with someone, That we tend to bring uh, past experiences from childhood and earlier life in, and they create this state, and if we... One thing we can do to begin to skillfully diffuse as opposed to suppress and repress is just simply take in presently what's really happening. I had this woman I worked with uh, a number of years ago who um, a couple of times would knock on my door like five or six times in the morning asking, is it ready, is it ready, is it ready? And so after a a week of this, when she came to, to the door, I was Pavlovian crime. I was like, what do you want? And she was like, I'm just asking how your weekend was. And I I observed, and the entire body was in this place of, you know, because I told the story that this is what she's going to want. She's going to want shit from me. I'm not going to have it ready. So I already worked myself up into that, that posture. So staying present. When we're in the relationship, what's really happening? Seeking refuge in what is actually occurring. The second refuge is also in the body. That's where we can feel those old emotional energies coming up. So before uh, we get into a difficult conversation where we want to work through reports, uh, whether it is reporting on a conflict with somebody else as a neutral party or directly going into a confrontation or something that might be a confrontation, I should say, is allowing these embodied experiences to arise without pushing them down, without um, going away into distractions like the laptop or the cell phone or the, you know, seeking a way to completely pull our awareness entirely away from what needs attention in the body. Sometimes I use a practice called just welcoming. These films, I just go, yes, welcome. Or I might greet them with metta. You know, may I be peaceful. May I feel inner ease. Or um, I'll, I care about you. I'll take care of you. I'll direct these welcoming phrases to the energy that's literally arising. Because when the energy is arising and we resist, it feels stronger, but if we welcome it it, it, it doesn't feel like we're going to be consumed or overwhelmed. It actually dissipates a little bit, enough that we can hold it. So welcoming and staying present with the feelings in the body, really important. Now the third practice is by far and away the most important, which is the precept of skillful speech. The Buddha was asked if in every conversation uh, he needed wives. Right. <laughs> There's something going on in there. I can see it. <laughs> it's a skillful speech. Skillful speech. The Buddha was asked by a member of another um, religious affiliation uh, whether he ever said things that were unwelcome. And it was a, kind of a trick question. And the Buddha answered it by saying, well, I say everything I say is honest, but it also has to be beneficial. I just don't say honest things that I don't believe are beneficial. But not everything I say is particularly welcome. Sometimes I have to, with other people, say things that they don't want to hear, but they express the truth. Now, what might be an example of it? For instance, if you have a friend that's an alcoholic, they might not be particularly thrilled to hear that you see them drinking their life away, but you might feel obligated to express that. But even more important for the sake of conflict, there might be times when you feel hurt by an action. And rather than swallowing it, staying away from the person, uh trying to moderate the experience by talking about them with other people or whatever, we might really want to do the hard, risky, vulnerable work of communicating about it and the things we say might not be particularly welcome. So, it's important still to go in to those places that have risks that might feel uncomfortable. We're all primed through childhood to be avoidant, as we said. We would much rather have people like us than be honest with our emotions and, and have our real, authentic emotions be rejected by parents or teachers or, or colleagues or school friends. So we're, we tend to try to avoid expressing feelings to others. But if we really want to do the mending work of, of working through conflicts, um, uh, it's important to be willing to say things that might not uh, be always welcome. So how do we do this? First of all, we always couch, if we want to do this practice, couch the expression in personal subjective experience, I feel. The moment I, I get into the story of you how dare you 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 were wrong factual statements truth claims you know those kind of uh, ways of phrasing you were wrong to have done that. Even if you're absolutely sure, phrasing it that way immediately makes people feel defensive it immediately creates a battle. Whereas in my experience, first of all, simply saying, this is just how I feel. My feelings were, I felt hurt when uh, we made a plan on Friday, and Friday came and I texted you and you didn't text back the entire day. Um, Because I waited and I didn't do anything and I had other opportunities and I felt wounded. When, When we say that, if somebody tries to say, well, you shouldn't feel that way. He can basically say, well, I'm sorry. It's just the way my, it's just the emotional experience. I felt sad. I can't help it. In my experience, people are less likely to be activated and feel defensive when we couch it in, this is my, was my experience, I'd like to hear yours. It's very important to each take turns, and without, and when somebody's taking a turn, never interrupting, no matter how outrageous their claim is. You can feel you've done 95% of the the house chores, and the person that's done 5% is telling you they do all the work. But still, it's our obligation in conflict resolution to sit with the emotional expression of outrage and hold it, and give them their turn. Because just the experience of each sharing, experience of being heard, tends to resolve and make people less uh, guarded, less standoffish. And we might not get everything we want, but we will, we will feel one hurt, and we will feel like we are no longer needing to push down, conceal, or manage an emotion outside of a relationship or avoid someone. And avoiding suppression, repression, all of those strategies feel awful. Working through something in the long term feels really relieving. And the... the years of teacher training, one of the things we have to do is we have to do these uh, check-ins where you just state your emotional expression, your experience, excuse me. Right now I'm feeling, you know, it's like you're in rehab. Right now I'm feeling angry, sad, miserable, lonely, depressed, morbid. Uh, And then after we do that, we talk about any issues. And then we talk about any uh, experience with somebody else in the teacher community that we feel activated by. And uh, very often, there might be this feeling to, like, hey. you know, I'm you? And Noah, <laughs> the moment any of us will start to try to justify ourselves or try to put across our opinion, they'll say, no, no, nope. no, nope. no, nope. no, nope. no, nope. nope. just sit with it. Not only that, but to add to the indignity (laughs) we have to say thank you thank you for saying that I want to rip your head from your shoulders and throw it out the window where you'll never find it again where dogs will chew on your head and pull it away but thank you (laughs) and yet when we do this when we develop this process of saying thank you are not even saying thank you, just being present and allowing somebody to share their their feeling and our feeling. What happens is there's this amazing amazing sense of the guardedness going down, the embodied stress relieving. We can hold the emotions. We can actually um, we actually develop a process where we can work through things. And it doesn't mean that we get to the place where it's all wonderful, you know, because we've all got these deep pools of, you know, toxins that we've, of suppressed emotions that we've been pouring into over the course of our lives, and believe me, they It can take years, decades to process that that reservoir of toxin. But we can start. And one of the most efficient places is in working through conflict. So that's enough out of me. I hope there was something worthwhile tonight. I thank you for listening. If you're going to leave now, if you can help us.